Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. How about them Browns? It's amazing to wake up on a Monday morning feeling good about this team and its direction after so many years of having nothing to talk about. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here today with Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. Chris Warnowski is taking a day off. Do you guys have a good weekend? Yeah. I listened Pretty to your good. double podcast on Friday, so. <laughs> yeah, did you hear us <laughs> making fun of you for being AWOL? I was, I was like, do they, I, it's absent without leave. I absolutely had leave. I was like, I was not, <laughs> not, like, not like I just didn't show up. Actually, actually, it was kind of amazing, though. You weren't there I for know, that day. You weren't there for the day household know, and got it. Reputation. You know? There's We created an award. I'm not going to name it, but we created an award years ago for an editor at the plane dealer who just never was there on the big story days. And it seems like you're (laughs) like the honorary new winner of that, but you're here today. So let's get started. Were we seeing things or was that really the Cleveland Browns who were destroying the Dallas Cowboys on the road Sunday? Lord Johnston, I haven't watched a lot of football this year and in, in the past couple of years, but I actually watched that game yesterday. And wow, that was a team that seemed like it had a destiny. They almost blew it in the end, but they didn't blow it in the end against a very good quarterback. What's going you know, on? If they had blown it in the end, that would have been the Browns, right? But um, it's amazing. All the dads at my son's soccer game were like, what? What is happening? Happening. The Browns put on this infe- impressive offensive display against the Cowboys in Dallas in their 49 to 38 win. Both Odell Beckham Jr. and Baker Mayfield had stellar games. The team is now three and one for the first time since 2001, which, okay, 19 years ago. Uh, the Browns rushed for more than 200 yards for the second time in three weeks. And at one point, they scored. 34 consecutive points in the win. And in the first half, I found this statistic startling. The Browns scored 31 points. That was the most in the first half of any game since December 1st, 1991. Well, actually, the the TV announcers put up a stat that I, I haven't verified, but they put up a stat that said it's the first time the Browns have scored 30 or more points in three games consecutively since 1968. <laughs> <laughs> they hadn't they hadn't beat, beaten the Cowboys since 1994. Oh, my gosh. What was really cool was the defense was in that first half was spectacular getting turnovers, turning them into points. I mean, they had another stat that said the Browns have more points off of turnovers than any team in the NFL. So so Dallas got its acting gear in the fourth quarter because they're a very good offensive team and the and the Cleveland defense clearly was starting to get tired, but they didn't blow it. And when when they when it was a three point game, 
they they took a gamble on a Odell Beckham play that turned into a 50 plus yard touchdown that pretty much iced the uh, the game. So it's cool. It's great to be talking about this. There's no audience that's bigger for us than the Browns audience, and they've been suffering for a long time. So we're starting the podcast to celebrate it because we don't know how long <laughs> we'll it will take last. it while we can I, get it right. I would love to have a chat with Dee Haslam because since she's been in town, she's just suffered through one miserable team after another, and she's got to be walking four feet off the ground having a three-in-one team to, to talk about. It's this week in the CLE. Is U.S. District Judge Dan Polster losing his patience with Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose over his inexplicable ballot drop box policy? Laura Johnston, Today's the day of reckoning. Today is Frank LaRose's moment where if he comes in and talks the nonsense he's been talking, I think the judge is going to land on him. So what what are the latest happenings here? And then, Jane, we'll want to hear from you on what's going on in a parallel case in state Right. Court. So Polster said LaRose has to file a response by noon today on this decision to add just one collection site. Um, as we know, the Cuyahoga County ha- Board of Elections had sought six sites at libraries throughout the county. And Polster wrote on Friday that LaRose has to address why he's prohibiting this plan. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast. I'm sure we will again. But that additional ballot box doesn't do much to solve anything. It's the site on Chester Avenue is supposed to open October 13th. It will be available during business hours. A few hours on the weekend doesn't solve the issue of travel time, may not help traffic. It doesn't make anything easy for voters. So let's put it. But let's put it in context. So LaRose has said every county can have one drop box. The people in Cuyahoga County say, how is that fair? We got more than a million people here and you got counties with 50,000 people. We're, we're being unfairly treated. We, we're going to have traffic jams. This is very difficult for people to do. This should be proportional. It's not equal mm-hmm. treatment, which LaRose is trying to argue it is. So Polster landed on him once and said, work this out, get with them and work it out. They never sat down at the table, apparently. LaRose just arbitrarily decided, okay, I'll add that one Dropbox you mentioned. It's it's the pretty much the worst of the additional ones because it's almost in the same spot as the the one they already had. It won't alleviate traffic congestion. And and the library plan mm-hmm. would, because people could go to the libraries. So I, I guess Polster looked at this, realized that. LaRose did not sit down and have the talk with the Board of Elections here, did not work it out the way he was ordered to. So now he has some explaining. (laughs) Let's see what. Jane, what's going on in the state court version of this? Because there's a similar lawsuit. Yes, there there is. Um, But I just wanted to clarify something on that site that they added. That's not really even a drop box, is it? The Chester Avenue thing? I think it's like a parking lot where they would collect the ballots. But I didn't know if it was a physical drop box. But anyway, in state court, an appeals court late Friday ruled that, in fact, LaRose has the discretion to decide whether to allow multiple drop boxes. So it's funny. I think this puts LaRose in a really interesting position because he basically won the case in that, you know, he's not being ordered to add the drop boxes. But now it's within his discretion. And in the past, he said, you know, he's in favor of more drop boxes. So now it's like the Democrats are saying, so what are you waiting for? Let's do it. But I suspect that since he's also said, oh, it's too close to the election to make changes, that that's where he's going to come down on this. But 
But Jane, that's ridiculous. The idea that adding drop boxes is a confusing change. That's just stupid, right? I mean, if, if tomorrow he said tomorrow is the day the ballots go out. So nobody has tried to drop off a ballot yet. If tomorrow he said you could drop it off in six places, no one's going to be confused <laughs> by that. Right. They're going to be elated by that. And look, the guy is in danger of having an H embroidered on all his clothes for a hypocrite because he has said, I'm not against this. I'm in favor of it. I just need legal authority. If a court says I can do it, I want to do it. Well, multiple courts have said he can do it. And in the federal court, there's a lot of evidence that he should do it. So I think I think he's in a real hot seat today. If he comes out at noon today and stands his ground, he risks getting that H embroidered on all his clothes and getting squashed by this or judge. Or being called the SOS is- instead of Secretary of State, the Secretary of Suppression, as some people are calling. Can I just add that everybody who's involved in voting just keeps saying they don't want chaos. But I feel like all we keep doing is like churning up more chaos with every filing in every lawsuit. And if they were all on the same page for not wanting to confuse voters, then don't confuse voters. Just agree on it. Speaking of which, it's a good time to mention that today is the voter registration deadline, the last day to register. And tomorrow, early voting starts. And and look, Laura, what you say about the chaos, you know, if you if you were to change the voter ID requirements at the polls now, you could argue that's going to cause chaos. There's lots of little things you could do that would cause chaos. But adding six places to drop off ballots at the 11th hour no, doesn't I cause chaos. You, and, and, it's, and it's a preposterous argument to make. But fighting these lawsuits and, and having multiple lawsuits on the same issue does seem confusing. Well, he could clear it all up. Yeah. With, a clear statement at noon today. You know what, Judge? You're right. Cuyahoga County has a million residents. We're going to make it easy for people to drop off their ballots. The Board of Elections has the staff to do it. We're, we're confident. And I'm going to I'm going to come down on the side of the voter. <laughs> yes, uh, we're speaking in comedy. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is it still OK for First Energy and others involved in this scandalous bribery case involving the one point three billion dollar bailout of Ohio nuclear plants to donate to the legislature? The legislators who adopted that bailout and are, are considering an appeal. You know, Jane Cahoon, Dave Yost, the attorney general, sought to stop that because this is the most crooked thing in the history of Ohio. And he's saying, you know, the people that were involved in this crookedness should not be allowed to continue their crooked ways. So he sought to stop any more donations, any more lobbying so that this thing could proceed because the legislature, as we know, is doing nothing to repeal this stinky bill, even though they said they would, which raises huge questions about what's going on behind closed doors. But Dave Yost was unsuccessful. Why? Well, a judge denied Yost's request for an injunction. Basically, it's a free speech issue. And it was interesting. The judge bemoaned the fact that, you know, political donations have fewer restrictions than his own free speech rights, is what he said. So, you know, Yost said this isn't the end of it. That's just one step in this, as you said, larger lawsuit, which seeks to put a hold on that bailout money. So there's lots of issues to still decide here. The frightening thing is that $1.3 billion is in an unimaginable amount of money. And so the people that were in line to benefit from that have huge motives to stop the repeal. And the fact that the legislature is doing nothing and COP is saying nothing 
is frightening because you don't know what's going on in the background. As we talked about before, it makes no sense not to repeal it. They're all up for reelection. People start voting tomorrow. You wish that the people who could benefit could you you could know for sure that they're not in the back rooms continuing to cause influence against the best benefits of Ohio residents. This is a frightening moment because it's still there. The most corrupt thing that's ever happened in Ohio is still on the books. And come January, they're taking money out of our pocket to give to these people that they really shouldn't get because it was forged in corruption. So good, good try by Dave Yost. I get it. It's a free speech issue. We're big backers of that. But I really wish there was some way to know that there was no more stink happening now because what's happening doesn't have an explanation. Right. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, do you think Yost is naive then to say, you know, he said, really, it would be foolish for anyone to accept campaign contributions from these defendants in this case or or to be engaging in private discussions with the defendants or their lobbyists. So I don't know. You seem to. think, <laughs> But is that is that any more unlikely than refusing to repeal it? I mean, I I just there is no logical explanation for why this isn't being repealed. So you do wonder, is there lobbying? And maybe it wouldn't be a campaign donation because that would be public. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's something bad. Maybe it's something illicit. You'd like to think that with the FBI's magnifying glass on this deal, that people would behave themselves. But like I said, one point three billion dollars is a lot of money. Plus, don't forget the uncoupling of the the rates the, that which was in the bill that guarantees First Energy a certain amount of money for running its electrical lines. That is worth enormous sums to the stockholders of First Energy. There's a financial motive here to keep this thing from being repealed. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did the White House notify Ohio Governor Mike DeWine that people at the debate in Cleveland might have been exposed to the coronavirus after the president was diagnosed with it last week? Lar Johnson, this was a bit of a surprise because the answer is no. How did we learn about yeah, that? Yeah, it's a big no. Um, and Mike DeWine was on the show State of the Union on Sunday, and he was talking to Jake Tapper, I believe the name is the host. And Tapper pushed him pretty hard asking what he learned from the president. And, and so DeWine told him he talked to the CEO of Cleveland Clinic, who gave me an update, but he doesn't know whether the White House reached out to the clinic at all. They had not talked to him about it. And Tapper kept going, asking DeWine a couple of times if he's not upset by the fact that the president put the citizens of Ohio at risk. But as we've seen over and over again at DeWine's news briefings, DeWine refused to criticize the president. He echoed what he said at his briefing on Friday, that the fact the president got COVID shows that anyone could get it. And he actually gave kudos to Trump for going to the hospital and saying that couldn't have been easy for him. But Tapper even played that tape of <laughs> Lieutenant Governor John Houston getting booed at the Trump rally by the crowd about the mask wearing. Think about how silly that is for the governor of Ohio to commend the president for going to the hospital to get treated for a potentially fatal disease. It's like, that's what we salute. That's what we, that, that you actually went and got medical treatment. <laughs> that's how bad things are because the belief is that this president believes he is so impervious to any kind of damage that people would expect him not to go to the hospital. <laughs> Can I say it's something just, here? Yeah, James Coon. Uh, you know, perhaps we shouldn't have been surprised that they didn't reach out to DeWine because from what I've read, People on the White House staff are upset with Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, because 
they didn't know like whether they should come to work or whether, right. you know, like they're, they're not even communicating with their own people. Oh, come on, Jane. The, the communication on this has been a disaster. I, I mean, look, Donald Trump began the pandemic. He's admitted this, lying to the American public about the danger it presented. After he was presented in late January with the facts that this is going to be a repeat in 1918, he turned around and told people it's nothing that will be gone by April. It's clear that we're not getting the truth now about his condition because nobody in the White House staff and the doctors can keep their story straight. They're such bumblers that they can't they can't even get behind one lie. So so his condition evidently has been very, very bad, even though we keep being told it's not the, the and nobody can get their story straight. So the fact that they're not communicating to their own staff. Does it surprise you? They're not communicating to anybody in the whole country. Right. And and so DeWine actually, after he was pushed, did say he wished the president had worn a mask. But he did say, I think the president has done a very good job of getting us the things we need. So um, it was a typical DeWine answer. And like, no matter how much you try to like point him and and just kind of push to get him to say anything that's not complimentary of the president, he's he's never going to, I don't think. Well, maybe he'll write a memoir when he's gone and be more honest about it. I suspect that he doesn't want to make the president angry at Ohio because there are benefits to Ohioans to getting the equipment we need. But maybe when he's got hindsight looking back, he'll he'll fill us in on some of the conversations he's had and what he might have really been thinking. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Donald Trump's campaign use tactics to discourage black people in Cleveland from voting in the 2016 election? Laura, this is kind of a blockbuster story that came out of a England TV station of all places that got hold of the voter list that the Trump campaign used for the entire nation. What did they yeah, show? This is, it, it looks like there was some voter deterrence from what we can tell. Cambridge Analytica had identified black voters and others who could be dissuaded from voting in the 2016 presidential, elect, presidential election by targeting them with social media ads. And black voters were disproportionately categorized in the file for deterrence, meaning they were deemed unlikely to vote for Trump, but were judged to be possibly be able to be discouraged from voting for Clinton. Um, the station focused on Milwaukee, but they sent us, I believe, Andrew Tobias, the data was for Cuyahoga County. So it says that of the county's 262, 633 black voters, 89,417 or about 33% of them were flagged for deterrence and compared to about 14% of the 481,446 white voters. So it's a much bigger proportion, more than double. And then voter turnout did drop slightly in Cuyahoga County from 70% in 2012 to 69% in 2016. That translated to Clinton winning about nearly 49,000 fewer votes than Barack Obama did four years earlier. Now, that was going to happen. Right. Some drop because there was a black candidate on the ballot four years earlier and there wasn't with Hillary Clinton. I, I was just surprised that they broke it down into the multiple categories. And for those black voters, mostly black voters, they actually used the word deterrence for the category. Um, they were very public. I mean, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but they were very honest with Bloomberg after the election in describing the tactics they used to discourage black people who might have voted for Clinton from going to the polls at all. 
Uh, and the TV station looked at how Facebook messages could be used to discourage people from voting. If you watch that television report, I mean, they would go up to, they went up to some people in Milwaukee and they said, okay, Mm -hmm. is this you? Are you this old? Is this your address? It says here that you're not open to suggestion. Is that how you would describe yourself? I mean, that's the level of detail that was in this voter list were were, were descriptors of people like that. Uh, And they were all marked for deterrence. And there was a market drop in voter turnout. The people that they talked to were not happy about it. So it was nice of the station to send us the data so that we could lay it out for what happened in Cuyahoga County. Uh, I have a feeling that people knowing that may be more persuaded to show up at the polls if they start thinking that their right to vote was was impeded by these underhanded Facebook tactics. So good stuff. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Are Jim Jordan, Rob Portman, and Joe Biden in danger of from the coronavirus because of their proximity to President Donald Trump during the week when he was diagnosed with COVID-19? Jan Cahoon, anybody that was with this guy has got to be scared. The announcement of his Supreme Court nominee is already being called a super spreader event because people are dropping left and right. You've got to wonder whether the debate itself at the Cleveland Clinic campus might be a super spreader event. We just don't know yet. Um, but but these guys were with the president last week. So what's the danger there? Correct. Uh, Jim Jordan was actually on Air Force One with the president flying into Cleveland. So you got to believe that he would be vulnerable. But both he and Senator Rob Portman tested negative on Friday. Uh, and as I said, it would seem that Jordan would have been in more peril because, you know, he was actually in this enclosed space with the president. Rob Portman, the day before the debate, was at an event that was outdoors at the White House. And um, he said he got his test out of an abundance of caution and that he's, you know, negative. And uh, Jim Jordan said his doctor had advised him he doesn't have to quarantine. So I don't know. I mean, I, I suspect that maybe he should get another test, you know, because you don't always... Test positive, right? Well, how does that work? So, so if you have it and I breathe your air and I get it, how quickly, and maybe Laura Johnston knows, or maybe we just don't have an answer to this, how quickly or what is the range of time at which the test results would be positive? I mean, it wouldn't be immediately positive. I think it can positive. go up to like two weeks. Yeah, it I could think it's something from, from two days, days to but... 14 days, but like five days is, is the most common, maybe like the media, I don't know, but two to 14 days. So nobody's out of the woods yet. I suspect those guys are going to get tested again. But as far as Joe Biden uh, being on the same stage with Trump without masks, they were distanced. So Eric Heisig kind of looked into that and talked to some doctors about how, you know, how much of a risk they think Biden um, had there for contracting the virus. And, you know, they generally concluded that it was pretty low risk, that it's impossible to eliminate any risk in a case like that especially an indoor event without masks. But it looked like they were, number one, far apart enough. And the debate was in this big hall with presumably good ventilation and not packed with with people. So they kind of thought that, you know, he was probably okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The demand by people in poverty for housing vouchers always far outstrips the supply, with windows opening for applications pretty rarely. But now things are changing, evening the playing field for everyone seeking a voucher. 
Laura Johnston, this is a program that has the highest possible demand because it allows people to rent apartments and homes that are not in public housing complexes. People hate living in public housing complexes because they can be so dreary. This gives you a chance to go into a suburb with a better school district, but they're so limited. There's a huge long waiting list. You know, I can't remember the last time the window to apply opened up. Layla Tassi says, though, things are changing. What's what's going on? Yeah. So Layla put it like this, that it comes around like a shooting star or a comet. It's that rare. And I believe the last one was in 2018, where the window stays open for a week and they're flooded with thousands of applicants. And from that pool, 10,000 get randomly selected for this waiting list. If you don't, you're out of luck until the next time. It just randomly appears. So this year, it'll be different. Uh, in November or December, CMHA is going to accept applicants applications for the lottery, but this time no deadline to apply. They'll accept applications on a rolling basis. So you'll remain on your list for 18 months. At that point, you must reapply. But in between all of this time, CMHA will hold periodic mini lotteries and vouchers will be awarded to applicants who are randomly selected. So, and now you can do it on the web. So you can update your contact information um, instead of, because if you move a lot, if you didn't have the right address on your paper, if they called you and they didn't have an updated information, like you could have won, but you were out of luck. So it sounds like they're they're really moving forward with a much easier to use system that's going to be better for people. You know, maybe what I'll do is I'll bring Layla on the podcast next week when uh, Jane is off to talk about the whole housing voucher. She's done a bunch of content on this about how the suburbs are discouraging the use of it. And she's had a wealth of knowledge. I mean, one of the big problems was getting access to it. But once you get a voucher, finding somebody that will accept it is difficult in part because of landlords, but in part because of the way the uh, public housing folks administer the program. Uh, This is good news, but it does by no means solves the problem that exists with housing vouchers. So maybe get her on for a, a good discussion about all the things that she's been reporting on because she's done some great work on it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Before COVID-19, we were coming hard on a deadline this fall for people to get the more secure driver's license necessary to take flights and have security. But the deadline was delayed because of COVID, giving people more time. But it's not delayed forever. Jane, the deadline is still out there. How much time do people have to get this license? Well, we got one year. The, this one kind of slipped by me. The The deadline was supposed to be last week, but now it's a year away because of the pandemic. The Trump administration postponed it to October 1st, 2021. I don't know. I think you got one. I got one. It's a hassle. Mm-hmm. It takes about 20 minutes. You got to bring in all sorts of weird paperwork. Um, and when when COVID started and all the driver's bureaus shut down, it was kind of frightening because this deadline was coming up. But it, but it still requires planning because when we get to this time next year, you're still going to have a bottleneck of people that need these licenses before they can fly if anybody ever flies again. And, you know, in general sense of ID, it's the secure license. It, we, we probably should put something together again that explains what you need to take. I don't, did we have that in the story last week about the deadline? Uh, you mean the requirements for what you need? Yeah, um, all the paperwork. Basically, it just kind of generally said you need, the, you know, your proof of uh, your birth and Social Security. I, I, it said so in a general way, but it wasn't specific. Yeah, but it's a very specific list. And, and you know, when I was there, there were people that came in, didn't have the right stuff. They were sent out. 
um, the people that had their right stuff, they felt like they won the lottery because <laughs> you get it done, <laughs> you wait in line, and then it takes 20 minutes. They have to have two people verify everything. So it's coming up in a year. People should get on it. It's this week in the CLE. Well, as as often happens when Chris isn't on the podcast, I think we're a little short, so we'll give people a little bit of their time back. It's another week of news. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow with another roundup of the news. Music.